Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In March of 2003, 20-year-old community college student Megan McDonald was severely beaten and murdered, and then her lifeless body was dumped in a remote area. Like a real-life criminal minds story, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, or the BAU, a branch of the FBI, put together a profile of her killer, whom police have never publicly identified, but they do know who he is and exactly what he's capable of. The BAU determined that Megan's murderer is a textbook narcissist who couldn't take no for an answer. And now, after 20 years, Investigators say they are closer than ever to finally bringing Megan's killer to justice. This episode is titled, Victim of a Narcissist, The Murder of Megan McDonald. So without further ado, let's get started. McDonald, the daughter of retired NYPD detective Dennis McDonald, grew up with her family, her father Dennis, her mother Elizabeth, and her older sister Karen. The family lived in Middletown, New York, a city located about 71 miles northwest of New York City. Megan's sister, Karen Whalen, said the family lived there since Megan was seven months old, so that area in Orange County, New York, is the only place Megan knew, and she loved it. Her family described her as small but mighty, standing about five feet, two inches tall, and weighing maybe a hundred pounds. But they also said she was a force of nature, a spitfire who held her own and could tell you exactly where to go in no uncertain terms if she needed to. (laughs) But she was also a truly compassionate person with the most generous soul, and people were simply drawn to her. For example, her brother-in-law told Dateline NBC a story about when he first met Megan. At the time, he was dating Megan's sister, Karen, and he had gone to their home to meet the family. James Whalen described how nice Megan was to him during the first meeting and how comfortable she made him feel. James told Dateline, quote, It was intimidating to me, but, and this is where Karen talks about Megan's compassion, she could easily have intimidated me if she wanted to. And she didn't. She made me, you know, she made me feel like a part of the family, end quote. Karen also told Dateline, quote, there's this Maya Angelou quote that says, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I feel that sums my sister up to a T. Like if you met her, just the way that she just made you feel comfortable, you just felt like you knew her forever, end quote. So it's no surprise that Megan was a very social person and she had lots and lots of friends. But during the spring of 2003, Megan was going through somewhat of an emotional growing period. 
You see, she was still grieving the death of her father, Dennis, who died unexpectedly from a heart attack about a year earlier in the spring of 2002. Her father was only 47 years old at the time of his death. So after a tremendously tough year of grief and loss, by the time March 2003 rolled around, Megan was at a point in her life where she was just trying to embrace the change in her life as well as adulthood. About two weeks before her murder, in February of 2003, she had just moved into her own apartment and she was taking classes at SUNY Orange, also known as Orange County Community College, which is located right there in Middletown. She was also working as a waitress at the American Cafe in the Galleria Mall, which is located in the town of Wallkill, New York, a smaller community in Orange County that's located about 20 miles away from Middletown. Wallkill is also where Megan moved into her own apartment in early 2003. That brings us to Thursday, March 13th, 2003. On this day, Megan left her new apartment in Wallkill to work a 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift at the American Cafe. A little after 3 p.m., after she got off work, she briefly stopped at the HSBC Bank in Middletown to withdraw some cash. Investigators aren't sure about Megan's whereabouts for the next four hours, but later, around 7 p.m. on March 13th, Megan pulled up to a birthday party on Greenway Terrace in the town of Wauquill. According to the reporting of Peter D. Kramer for the Times-Herald Record, Greenway Terrace is located in the same neighborhood that Megan grew up in, which means she was very familiar with the area and she had several friends who lived there as well. However, Megan never actually attended the birthday party, meaning she never went inside the home. Instead, she pulled up on the roadway in front of the house, and two of her friends approached her as she waited inside her white 1991 Mercury Sable, which was equipped with black stripes running down both sides of the vehicle. The two friends told Megan to come inside to the party, but Megan informed them that she actually had other plans and she was going to go to Middletown to hang out with another friend. According to the Times-Herald record, investigators believe Megan's killer was actually at the birthday party and he became jealous after Megan chose to hang out in Middletown instead of in Wauquill. Apparently, they believe her killer was jealous because the friend or friend she was going to hang out with had ties to Megan's former boyfriend. So put a pin in that. According to the reporting of Veronica Fulton for Dateline NBC, Megan was more specifically going to hang out with her best friend in Middletown, which she did from about 7.30 p.m. to midnight, and the two had spent the evening watching their favorite TV show, Friends. Y'all, that's one of my all-time favorite TV shows as well, and that's definitely something that me and my best friend would have been watching back in 2003 too. Right, bestie? Anyway, around midnight, Megan told her best friend that she needed to head out, go back home to her apartment in Wauquill because she had to work another shift at the American Cafe the next day. Unfortunately, though, that was the last time that Megan's best friend would ever see her. But here's the thing. Instead of going back to her apartment like she told her friend she was going to do, Megan actually went back to the birthday party on Greenway Terrace. However, she still did not go inside. This time, when Megan pulled up in her vehicle, two different friends were exiting the party and saw Megan in her car. According to the Times-Herald record, one of those friends had a short conversation with Megan and observed that nobody else appeared to be in the vehicle with Megan at the time, so she was still by herself. 
At this point, though, she told the two friends that she had yet more arrangements that night and basically hinted at the possibility that she was going to meet somebody else. So basically, she told them that she couldn't stay. She then left Greenway Terrace for a second time that night, and her two friends saw her driving away and turning down Cindy Lane. It was now around 12.15 a.m. on March 14th, 2003, so into the next day. Then, by about 12.30 a.m., Megan's white Mercury Sable was seen driving through the parking lot of the Kensington Manor apartment complex, and following right behind her was a dark-colored hatchback vehicle, possibly a Honda Civic, with an obnoxiously loud stereo system blasting its music. According to the witness who saw this, the two cars circled the parking lot twice, the hatchback following closely behind Megan's vehicle each time. Now, I do want to point out that these apartments are not the same apartment complex that Megan recently moved into by herself. It was a different location altogether, which means there has to be a specific reason why Megan was circling the parking lot of this particular complex. Well, there is. It's because the prime suspect in this case is somehow connected to these apartments. Police won't say exactly how, like if he lived there or whatever, but they do say it is connected and that they do know why Megan was there that night. Police also have not officially identified their only suspect in this case, at least not yet. They are waiting for the right time, and as we get through the episode, you'll understand why. So instead of identifying the man they think is responsible for Megan's murder, they just refer to him as the perpetrator, or the suspect, or the individual. In this episode, though, to try and avoid confusion whenever I'm talking about him, I'm going to refer to him or this individual from here on out as John. On Friday, March 14th, 2003, Megan did not show up to work her shift at the American Cafe, which was scheduled to start at noon, and her friends and family became increasingly worried when they couldn't get in touch with her as the day went on. Megan's sister Karen told Dateline, quote, My mom couldn't get a hold of her, and so we then started to worry, end quote. Her family then began to call her cell phone and leave her voicemails, you know, asking where she was and what was going on and if she was okay. Karen's husband James elaborated on this and explained how their worry gradually escalated as the day went on and nobody heard from Megan. James said, quote, You go from, at first, being sort of annoyed or angry to, like, where are you? End quote. But the family soon received a call that would tell them exactly what happened to Megan, a call that would rock them to their core and forever change their lives. On Saturday, March 15, 2003, at around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, a man and his nephew discovered a deceased female on their property off Bowser Road, a remote location about seven miles away from that Greenway Terrace party. The property owner quickly called authorities to report the body he found. New York State Police responded to the call and were able to identify the female as Megan McDonald through her driver's license. Now police had their work cut out for them, though. It was obvious that they had a homicide on their hands, and solving this case became even more personal for law enforcement when they found out who Megan was. Remember, she was the daughter of a retired homicide detective for NYPD, Dennis McDonald, a detective who unexpectedly passed away the year before in 2002. Dennis had worked for the NYPD for 20 years, and he was even part of the police team that investigated the first terror attack against the World Trade Center back in 1993. 
So as their investigation began, the New York State Police soon learned that Megan owned a white 1991 Mercury Sable. But here's the thing. Her car was not found at the crime scene. Megan had obviously been dumped at the location where her body was found, which means her car was still out there somewhere. So law enforcement put out information about Megan's car to the media and other local police departments. A few days later, on March 17th, 2003, a witness from the Kensington Manor Apartments recognized the car and contacted police. The woman informed them that the car had actually been parked there since at least 8 a.m. on March 14th, technically the day Megan was murdered. When police went to the Kensington Manor apartment complex to check out this car, which they did positively identify as Megan's because of those black stripes on the side, they observed that it was parked at an odd angle in the back of the complex and it was wedged between two separate parking spots. This led police to believe that whoever drove Megan's car back to Kensington Manor and abandoned it there must have exited the vehicle in a hurry. New York State Police investigator Brad Natalizio said the vehicle was sent to the state police headquarters in 2003 for processing. He said they processed it for DNA analysis and fingerprints at the time, and that advances in DNA technology over the past 20 years have inched them closer and closer to solving this case. Natalizio told Peter D. Kramer for the Times-Herald Record, quote, There is significant DNA evidence in the vehicle that links two individuals of interest in this particular case, end quote. One of those individuals is, you guessed it, the guy we're calling John. But at the time in 2003, before any specific suspects were on their radar, police now had more of a solid timeline to work with. They had to figure out what happened to Megan between 12.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. on March 14, 2003, when the witness noticed her car parked at Kensington Manor. After extensive interviews and pouring over more than 700 pieces of evidence and following over 800 leads in the past 20 years, investigators believe they know exactly what went down. On the 19th anniversary of Megan's death, in March of 2022, police finally released new information to the public, including a profile of the perpetrator that the BAU of the FBI worked up in 2018 after looking at crime scene and autopsy photos and reviewing the extensive case file. Investigators believe that the prime suspect, who we are calling John, was and is a textbook narcissist, and that he shows all the signs of narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD. The American Psychological Association describes characteristics of NPD, which consist of one, a long-standing pattern of grandiose self-importance and an exaggerated sense of talent and achievements. Two, fantasies of unlimited sex, power, brilliance, or beauty. Three, an exhibitionistic need for attention and admiration. Four, either cool indifference or feelings of rage, humiliation, or emptiness as a response to criticism, indifference, or defeat. And five, various interpersonal disturbances, such as feeling entitled to special favors, taking advantage of others, and inability to empathize with the feelings of others. So basically, a self-righteous prick who thinks he's better than everyone else and can't take no for an answer. Detective Natalizio explained that when someone challenges a narcissist's dominance or their sense of superiority, the resulting quote-unquote narcissistic injury 
can spark a violent over-the-top reaction, which is exactly what investigators think happened on Bowser Road the night of Megan's murder. So here's what police believe happened to Megan in the early morning hours of March 14, 2003. After leaving the Greenway Terrace party for the second time that night, shortly after midnight, Megan went to pick up yet another friend. Police described this person as the front seat passenger, just someone along for the ride. At some point, Megan and her passenger linked up with John. Around 12.30 a.m. then, Megan drove into the Kensington Manor parking lot, closely followed by John, whom police have confirmed owned a Honda Civic hatchback in 2003. At some point, though, John parked his vehicle at Kensington Manor, and then he slid into Megan's back seat. She did not want him to know where her new apartment was, though, so she agreed to drive them out to that remote property on Bowser Road in Walk Hill. Detective Natalizio said, quote, We believe that she did not want to go back to her apartment because she did not want to bring the individual that she was with, the individual in the back seat, back to that location, end quote. According to police, the remote location off Bowser Road is important not only because it's the actual crime scene, where Megan's body was dumped and later found by the property owners, but also because it just so happens that their prime suspect, John, was actually given permission by those property owners to use the location as a hangout spot. Detective Natalizio said, quote, he was there numerous times in the past, end quote. Natalizio went on to explain that Megan's body was more specifically found in a wooded, desolate area along a dirt path on the property, and he said that the perpetrator must have known exactly where that dirt path was located. Detectives believe that Megan met up with John because the two were having a casual physical relationship, but she wanted to end it that night. You see, to John, Megan was just another number, another notch on his belt among several other women he was also having casual sex with in Orange County. To him, he considered her lucky that he would even give her the time of day. That's the way his mind worked. But to Megan, she was sick of it and over it. She had heard enough, seen enough, had enough, and she wanted him to know that she would no longer remain entangled in his deceitful narcissistic web. But John, with his narcissistic ego, was incredibly wounded by her words, and he could not allow that to happen. So, in a narcissistically fueled rage, he lashed out at her, struck her with some type of blunt object over and over again, as Megan's friend in the passenger seat watched in complete shock and horror. Natalizio described John's actions as a narcissistic injury that, quote, the suspect received from Megan, at which point that individual snapped, completely lost his composure, and conducted blunt force trauma to Megan, causing her death. Megan was ultimately killed in the driver's seat of her vehicle by the individual in the back seat, and then dumped here in the field and left here until she was found several days later. The individuals then, in a frenzy, left this location and drove the vehicle back to the Kensington Manor parking lot and then quickly fled the scene from there, end quote. So, while law enforcement and investigators refer to John as their prime suspect, or the perpetrator, Megan's family refers to him as a coward, plain and simple. James Whalen, Megan's brother-in-law, said, quote, he couldn't even come at her face to face. He had to attack her from behind when she didn't have a chance to defend herself. What a coward. What a loser that he couldn't intimidate or threaten Megan and he had to attack her from the shadows, end quote. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, 
If police have all this evidence against this individual we are calling John, and if they are so certain he is the killer, then why haven't they arrested and charged him yet? I mean, it's been 20 years after all, so what is taking so dang long? Why hasn't this case been solved once and for all? Well, there's a good explanation, so let's dive into that. You see, for quite a long time, John wasn't really on police's radar. From my understanding, according to source material, he actually wasn't a suspect for several years. At first, investigators zeroed in on Megan's former boyfriend, which is the main theory that has been circulating in the public in Orange County since the murder occurred in 2003. But when police really dug into her ex-boyfriend as a suspect, the pieces just weren't falling into place. Plus, the evidence they gathered from the crime scene in the days and weeks following Megan's murder, it just didn't match up to her former boyfriend being the killer. It was like trying to push a square peg through a round hole. And honestly, besides him being her ex-boyfriend, there really wasn't much of a motive. According to the Times-Herald record, Investigators have completely cleared Megan's ex-boyfriend as a suspect, and they are 100% sure that John is their guy. That is because when they learned that Megan had a casual relationship with John and they then shifted their attention to him, all the pieces began to fall into place and the motive became crystal clear. Also, new advancements in DNA technology have allowed investigators to place John in the backseat of Megan's car the night of her murder. According to the Times-Herald record, locations that seemed to be completely random in their timeline before, locations like Greenway Terrace, the Kensington Manor Apartments, and Bowser Road, now suddenly made sense. Okay, so let's recap. They now have a prime suspect with all of this evidence. That still doesn't explain why they haven't made an arrest after 20 years. Well, you see, the information I just shared with you has only come to light in the past few years. And as I previously mentioned earlier in the episode, solving Megan's case has become incredibly personal for many of the investigators working the case, mostly because they are on a mission to bring justice to the daughter of the late NYPD detective Dennis McDonald. And because of how personal it is, they want to ensure that they have a slam dunk case. They can't afford to make a mistake or have any holes that the defense could easily poke through. So they are being thorough. But y'all, it's a particularly personal case for Detective Natalizio, who has worked on it for the past five years. Natalizio told Fox News, quote, Prior to getting promoted to investigator, when I was on patrol, I was actually driving around and my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she texted me and she asked, hey, do you know Megan McDonald? And I said, yeah, I've heard of her. It's a very popular case in the Orange County area. And she said, if you're ever promoted to investigator, I want you to get that case. And I want you to solve that case because I work with her mom at the hospital. They were both registered nurses on the same floor. It hits home, end quote. In 2017, After Natalizio began working for the New York State Police as an investigator, he kept that promise he made to his wife and he jumped at the chance to take on Megan's case. And y'all, he hasn't stopped digging since. But he called the work that he's done a community effort across multiple departments and the biggest breaks in the case have come only in the past few years, including the profile the BAU worked up about Megan's killer being a textbook narcissist. And as I previously mentioned, investigators just recently revealed new and critical information within the last year. 
On the 19th anniversary of Megan's death in March of 2022, so just last year, they revealed that they re-interviewed important witnesses, including the woman at Kensington Manor who reported seeing the two cars, you know, Megan's Mercury Sable and the dark colored hatchback with the loud stereo system. And investigators asked her to elaborate on exactly what she saw that night. It was only then when they re-interviewed her that they learned of the reason she got up to look out her window in the first place. The witness told police that the only reason she went to look out her window was because of that loud stereo system in the hatchback. Like it was so loud and she was so rattled by the noise that she got up to see what in the hell was going on. I mean, who would be driving through an apartment complex that late at night or early in the morning, if you will, blaring such loud music. So it was because of the deafening stereo system, a small, simple, but incredibly important fact that they did not previously know. And they were able to verify this fact and link it back to John, ensuring that he not only drove a Honda Civic hatchback in 2003, but that it was also equipped with a loud stereo system. Investigators even say that if John would have had a quieter car, he may have gone unnoticed. Y'all, for some reason, that blows my mind. How it was one tiny detail that they missed all those years ago that really pushed the case forward nearly 20 years later. I mean, not one investigator in 2003 thought to ask the witness why she looked out the window in the first place. It's just odd to me and kind of baffles my mind. One little piece 20 years ago could have potentially led them to Megan's killer much sooner. Now, I want to be clear. I am not bashing the previous investigators in any way. Don't get me wrong. I feel like cases like these are incredibly difficult to work, and I'm sure they worked just as hard on it as current investigators. I'm just saying that, to me, it's so interesting how solving crimes work sometimes. I guess that's what fascinates me about true crime. All the tiny details that can make or break a case. Okay, (laughs) sorry. I got a little sidetracked, but I'll get back to the story. Anyway, last year's media push and update on the case also revealed that John used to have a tight grip on his circle of friends, which is not necessarily surprising because it's an obvious sign of NPD. Detective Natalizio said the suspect considered himself a big shot and was incredibly intimidating to his circle of friends. But time has passed. Those friends are well into adulthood and they no longer fear the consequences of coming forward. In his 2022 article for the Times-Herald record, Peter D. Kramer wrote that the killer in 2003, quote, had all the women, all the power, all the friends under his thumb. That, and his spreading of rumors about the original suspect, is how he was able to stay out of the glare of suspicion for so long, end quote. Um, yeah. Apparently, John flew under the radar for so long in part because he went around town telling people that Megan's ex-boyfriend is the one who killed her, a blatant lie to steer police away from him. Also, you might recall that I mentioned earlier in the episode that police actually had two different suspects at one point. Well, that brings us to the friend who was with Megan and John that night, the friend who was sitting in the passenger seat and watched it all go down. Police have never released this individual's name or identity, But the person died several years ago. While once considered to potentially be part of the crime, investigators have ultimately cleared this individual, and they even believe he was a second victim in a way. 
The Times-Herald record reported that investigators said that what he witnessed haunted him and ate at him for years, and he was too scared to come forward before he died. They don't believe he had anything to do with the crime except for the possibility that John might have forced him to drive Megan's car back to the Kensington Manor apartments to dump it. Detective Natalizio said, quote, We are only after one individual. We are only after the individual that murdered Megan McDonald. The other individual that was with her, we're not after him. We're not after his family. We're not after his friends. We believe that he was just hanging out with her that night and observed this happen right in front of his eyes. We only want the one individual that did this, the individual who had the motive, and ultimately it was a crime of passion, end quote. This year, in March of 2023, the Times-Herald record ran an update about where Natalizio and his team are now, 20 years later, when Megan would be 40 years old. Natalizio said that waiting this long to make an arrest will be well worth the wait, and he assured that they are closer than ever to solving Megan's case. He said, quote, we're going to wait until it's the best case that we can possibly have. When more information comes in, we're going to keep digging and keep going with it. One of the issues with colder cases is that time does hurt, in a sense. Sometimes memories fade and sometimes key individuals may pass away. However, I'm not concerned about that with this case. I feel that everything that's come our way has been a blessing, and it's been for the right reason, end quote. Natalizio also said that they, quote, see the finish line in sight, end quote. Last year, in 2022, Megan's sister Karen told reporter Peter D. Kramer, quote, Megan was 20 when this happened. Now it's been 19 years, and we refuse to let this coward remain free longer than she was alive. He's going to be out there living his life longer than she ever had. I'm going to write next year's headline. Next year's headline is going to be, 20th anniversary sees the coward in jail, end quote. And y'all, with the public's help, I truly believe Karen can get that headline this year in 2023. But like I said, they still need your help to bring Megan's killer to justice once and for all, and police are still encouraging anyone with information to come forward because they said, the more tips, the better. So if you have any information about Megan's murder, contact the New York State Police Department Troop F Investigators. You can call the confidential tip line at 845-344-5370. You can also submit a tip by emailing crimetip at troopers.ny.gov. In addition, the NYPD Detective Endowment Association, as well as the FBI, are each offering two separate $10,000 rewards leading to the arrest of the suspect. And I have also listed all that information in the show notes, so you can always check it out there. For now, if you are ever in the state of New York, you can see Megan's face on several billboards that Lamar Advertising has put up free of charge. There are seven total billboards along State Route 17 in Orange and Sullivan counties, and also on I-84 in Orange County. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 47, but be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com and be sure to keep checking out my TikTok for some additional Campus Crime stories. 
Also, y'all, please don't forget to review Campus Crime Chronicles on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now. I'm still trying to reach 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, and y'all, I am inching closer and closer. I think I only need like six more reviews to reach my goal. So if you haven't left me a review yet, that is your homework. I'm, that's right. I'm giving y'all an assignment. You <laughs> Go review me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so I can get those reviews. It, I promise you guys, it really does help others know that this podcast is out there. So the more reviews, the better. The more reviews that I have, the more Apple likes it and puts me in the rotation and shows people that I'm out there. So um, yeah, help me get to 100. <laughs> okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.